Texas Weeds World, where we talk to the most interesting people in the world on KABF 88.3, the voice of the people. You want to see how the other half lives? Well, see how we get around. Why don't you come visit me on the east side of town? Hello, this is Wade Rasky from Wade's World. This has been, um, this is Wade Rasky. You're listening to Wade's World, the Voice of the People program. Welcome to the east side of town so that we can talk about how the other half lives and what life is like here living in Wade's World, whether that's the east side of Little Rock, Greenville, or New Orleans, or on Acorn Radio in Nairobi, Bengaluru, Bristol, or Bombay, points east and west. But we are either rebroadcast or live streamed at kabf.org. WAMF.org or acornradio.org. A podcast will be available to show on those websites and at www.chieforganizer.org. You know the story on Wage World. We talk to the most interesting people in the world, and today we're talking to Barbara Fries, who is uh, an environmental attorney and a former Minnesota assistant attorney general, who's written a fascinating book called Industrial Strength Denial. Eight stories of corporations defending the indefensible from slave trade to climate change. Welcome to Wade's World, Barbara. Thank you for having me, Wade. Oh, a pleasure. So uh, eight cases, uh, we get to pick and choose. I warned Barbara that uh, although the, the stories she tells of the slave trade and Ralph Nader's great work were amazing, I've asked her if we could start talking about ethyl and lead and gasoline. Uh, That's quite a story, Barbara. Yeah, it it really surprised me because I didn't realize how much of a dispute there was about putting lead into the gasoline back in the 1920s when it was first proposed and when it it first started. I, I kind of assumed that that debate began in the 60s, but but I was wrong about that. When um, GM's uh, engineers, including a man named Thomas Midgley, figured out that bit of, of a chemical called ethyl lead in the gasoline uh, made cars run smoother. The public health authorities at the time were appalled because they understood lead was a cumulative and, and putting it into the nation's fuel supply seemed pretty obviously like a bad idea. Uh, and yet somehow all of their objections were ignored and overcome and, and eventually the industry just came to dominate science and the whole was ignored another 40 years. It was fascinating. They even managed to take lead out of the name and just call it ethyl for part of their branding, right? Exactly. And in fact, in the, the industry, I mean, this was the first GM and Standard Oil, and they created the Ethyl Corporation to market leaded gasoline. They um, contracted with the Bureau of Mines, the Federal Bureau of Mines, because they wanted to get some sort of uh, independent-seeming organization to say this stuff was safe. But the, when they did that, they arranged with them not to use the word lead because they thought it would prejudice people against the product. As it rightly should have. And uh, Thomas uh, Midgley uh, was quite proud of this, wasn't he? He was enormously proud of this. They had worked for a long time to try to figure out how to make engines not knock when when they burn the fuel and and so they were delighted when they came up with this product 
it, it's entirely possible they could have just used ethanol, which you can make with a still. Um, but because it's so easy to do that, you couldn't patent it. So finding a way to do it with uh, the chemical called tetraethyl lead, that was patentable, and that was something they could make a lot of money from. Which is uh, exactly what they tried to do. And his partner was uh, the head of GM, right, Kettering? Uh, Kettering was a, was not the head at the time, but he was a, a very prominent enge- engineer and ended up becoming very famous nationwide as sort of the prophet of progress because he was uh, a popular speaker, had a very can-do attitude and, and a kind of folksy charm. And and uh, so, yeah, he, was, he became very well-known, and he was sort of a mentor for Thomas Midgley, who had invented the tetraethyl lead, or the leaded gasoline. And that's the same uh, name that's connected with the world-famous Sloan Kettering Hospital. Yes, it is. And Sloan was uh, the the CEO of GM. Right. That's exactly Mm -hmm. right. Thank you for correcting me there. But, uh, you know, there's peds in a pod on this story. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) how did they get away with this? They managed, I mean, I was also surprised in reading. Certainly, I'm old enough to remember all the fights about getting lead out of gasoline, but to see it as something 100 years ago, how did they manage to get away with this for so long? Well, you know, there, was a, there were uh, some headlines um, that were raising alarm about this, but it was mainly regarding um, the, the poisoning of the workers who were handling the tetraethyl lead because they would very um, dramatically find themselves uh, going, as the New York Times called it, violently insane, and they started calling this insanity gas. Um, and so there was concern about worker exposure to tetraethyl lead, and concern about public exposure to lead from the burning of the fuel. Um, ultimately, this led to a, a one-day conference that the Surgeon General had, uh, the public health um, uh, organization. But that conference, you know, it was it lasted a single day, and basically the industry said, okay, we can solve the, the workplace exposure problem, and trust us, we have the best interest of the public in mind, and we'll monitor the situation when it comes to public exposure to lead, and the, um, the committee wrapped up and urged Congress to appropriate money to study this issue. Congress never did. Uh, so the only people who really were studying it was the industry itself, and they managed for 40 years to dominate this science and to persuade those who were paying any attention at all that having very high levels of lead in your blood was entirely natural, that it's something that humans had always had because net lead was in the environment uh, and <clears throat> that it was harmless until you got up to clinical lead poisoning, which was around uh, 80 micrograms per deciliter. And, you know, back then in the 60s, finally, outside scientists came in, one in particular named Claire Patterson, who was just trying to measure the age of the earth. And he discovered that, no, we have not always had high levels of lead in our blood. That was only since we started putting lead into the atmosphere, into the atmosphere through our industrialization. And that's when it finally became clear that we had really poisoned generations of people by putting lead in the gasoline. My, uh, you know, longtime partner is a community organizer who uh, has fought these lead campaigns for decades and you know, is on a, a server. They call themselves Leadheads. <laughs> and, um, so, I, you know, I've had it drilled into me for years uh, across the uh, breakfast table uh, as well that 
any level of lead can be damaging to children. Uh, so the notion that 80 micrograms is was just fine was almost like, you know, poisoning. But then another part of your story is how they were sort of, you know, button, button, who's got the button? The oil industry would claim, the ethyl industry would claim it was the paint people. And the paint people would say, no, 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 it's... It's right. the ethyl they, people. They were pointing, right. And now, as it happened, when they took lead out of the gasoline starting in the late 70s and going on, we did start to see a, an almost lockstep drop of lead levels in children's blood. And, and that's not to let the lead paint industry off the hook. That was definitely and remains a contributor because there's still so much old lead paint out there. But um, clearly, the, the lead in the gasoline was a huge problem, and lead levels... Um, across the population have gone way down since lead was taken out of the gasoline. It's such a pernicious thing. I, I live in New Orleans, and of course, there's no room between the front stoop and the street. Um, mm. So you have, you're in a double bind. The house is over 100 years old, i.e. it had lead paint, and mm-hmm. you're right next to the street that picked up lead from gasoline forever. So um, uh, yeah. They've done a testing program for years now uh, with soil and everything else. But and then there was the claim, obviously, that Katrina would wash some of that away. You know, it's just it, uh, your story. You could have written the whole book just about uh, this one problem. Uh, I was interested as well. I was telling you before the show started, uh, our union bought a union hall uh, in Baton Rouge, uh, Louisiana, from the steel workers. Uh, and they were selling it because it was a union hall bought by the local union at the Ethel Corporation refinery in Baton Rouge, as long as there was a refinery. Uh, oh. And they finally sold it. Uh, we bought it in the late 1980s. Uh, so they were still dragging their feet to shut that plant on into that time. Right. And in the meanwhile, the industry decided that it was going to try to market its product more abroad, where, as the, as the head of Ethel said, they didn't face the same hysteria that they faced here in the United States. Same problem with lead and paint. I mean, when we were fighting that campaign with Acorn and getting nowhere with Sherman Williams and so many, we, our organizations in Peru and Argentina could still find lead being manufactured in, pre- in paint. And this was a decade ago, but mm-hmm. this is still... It may have stopped now, uh, but we were having problems stopping it then. We're talking to Barbara Fries, who's an environmental attorney uh, and an author of Industrial Strength Denial, which is a series of stories, case studies, as we're talking about. Now, our friend Midgley shows up again in the next chapter. I mean, I was like, you know, (laughs) saying to myself, Barbara, how did this guy get away with this? I mean, what does money do to people? And then I, I opened the chapter on CFCs, and he's back. Yep, he's back. Back in the 1920s, the refrigeration was becoming popular, but the chemicals used as refrigerants would occasionally leak out and kill people because they were highly toxic. So uh, GM asked Midgley to come up with a gas that would allow for refrigeration that would not be toxic, and he invented essentially or discovered CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, which uh, did the trick very well, and so that was seen as a major safety advance, and, and you could say it was for the people who wanted to use refrigerators. Fewer people died from leaking refrigerators. Um, but what made this product... The whole planet could die instead. 
Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the thing was, the CFCs were not reactive, and that was a great thing. They weren't chemically reactive until they made it to the stratosphere, which would take some decades, and then they'd get up there, and then they'd be bombarded by radiation, and then they would start destroying the ozone layer, which meant the rest of us were at greater risk of being bombarded by radiation. So it was, um, well, there are a lot of layers of irony there, and what was attempted to be, you know, a safety advance ended up putting the whole planet in danger, as you say. I mean, this guy should be part of a, a rogues gallery. And our friend uh, Kettering was back in this game, too. Right. So after Midgley invented the CFCs, basically they um, started a, a company, Frigidaire, uh, and they marketed this as Freon, uh, and it became the basis of the fr- refrigeration and air conditioning industry and also then later used to propel uh, aerosols. So it was in all the spray cans. That's what the big spray can disputes of the 70s were about. It was these CFCs destroying the ozone layer. And, you know, there's still to this day, 2020, sort of an underground market in Freon. Well, and then there are lots of old uh, appliances that might still have some of these chemicals out there. And, and no unfortunately, question. then some of the chemicals we used to replace them were still very potent uh, greenhouse gas chemicals. So it's been kind of a rolling process. Uh, but, uh, you know, of all of the eight campaigns of denial that I looked at and, and the consequences, the ones related to ozone were the, the ones that came closest to being a success story, um, where you could say, okay, the scientists got it together, they figured it out, the industry dragged its feet for a couple decades, but they eventually came around. The government, even you know, Ronald Reagan, signed the Montreal Protocol, an right. anti-regulatory president. So you could sort of point to that and say, look, humanity got it together in time to to solve this problem, and we behaved in a reasonably rational way. Unfortunately, it was it was then followed up by this profoundly dangerous anti-scientific backlash, uh, including by uh, the, these kind of right-wing free market groups who were claiming that even the ozone science was a hoax and would then go on to dispute the science over tobacco and climate change and pretty much every uh, industry-facing regulation, uh, there'd be somebody there saying, no, you shouldn't have to be regulated because this is junk science, and, and I think really helped undermine social trust uh, in science, in the government, in academia, in the media, to the point that, you know, helped contribute to the place where we are now, where, you know, now there's just so little trust in, in a major portion of our population that they don't even believe election results when they see them. And science is under attack. I mean, it was amazing to see uh, Nature magazine and other science journals actually making an endorsement for president in the U.S. race. That's un- unheard of, but yeah. it has to do with with how marginalized this current administration has made science to our peril. Yeah, it really is an astonishing thing to see scientific groups, scientific publications that have worked so hard for so long to remain nonpartisan finally decide that they just can't do that. They have to speak up in the name of science and say, we cannot continue down this path. And the CDC has been caught up in that and everything else. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully we're seeing signs uh, that they're starting to grow a backbone back again uh, after the surgical removal of the last couple of years. But (laughs) this is uh, the way that these these things have been justified. I mean, part of the unique twist that uh, you try to bring to these terrible stories, some of which we know, many of which we don't know in full of detail, is, is sort of the 
psychobabble that they use to defend each other and different tribes. And we see that happening now, too, don't we? I, I, I call it psychobabble. You do better. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> there are psychological uh, theories and uh, behaviors here that are, are, are fairly uh, powerful. Yeah, well, it's funny because psychology plays kind of two roles in in my book. On the one hand, I am trying to identify, based on actual scientific evidence, what sorts of factors contribute to, well, I'll just say denial. And some of that denial could just be outright deception, and some of that denial could be self-denial, so it could be some kind of delusion. On the other hand, we also saw industries, and particularly the tobacco industry, making use of psychology and because they understood they needed to give their consumers uh, ways to rationalize smoking, even though the science was showing how dangerous it was. And, and so they really tapped into psychology and used the evidence <clears throat> the best way they could to provide those rationalizations. And amazingly, as you point out in your book, even now that they admit that cigarettes kill, uh, they're making money on it still. Oh, well, I mean, one of the things that was amazing in looking back at the denials from tobacco was that decade after decade, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, they kept saying, if we really believed this product was dangerous, we would not we sell it, do it. <laughs> because we are moral companies. Um, and then in the 90s, they finally realized they don't have to say that, and they stopped saying that, and they said, well, of course we're going to keep selling it. And some of them, one, the head of one of the tobacco companies actually said, hey, as long as it's legal, we have no choice but to sell it. And that was astonishing because they had also been arguing for years that they were the, the champions of personal responsibility. And, and so to suddenly say, you know, we have no choice seemed kind of astonishing to me. Well, I mean, the thing that was uh, most striking to me was, I mean, not the, the lies and perfidy here and, that's in, and the greed, but the fact that victims have to justify why they should not be harmed as opposed to manufacturers and promoters of these kinds of, whether it's CFDs or lead or whatever else, I mean, uh, we're forced to prove the liabilities as opposed to them having to prove the safety. Right. That is a, a factor that appeared again and again. And, you know, as a lawyer, I put that into the category of burden of proof. Basically, they, the industries kept the burden of proof on those alleging harm, which meant they got the benefit of every doubt, which meant they had every incentive to manufacture doubt and exaggerate doubt. And that proved to be just so easy regarding any even slightly complicated situation. And that then paralyzes the, the machinery of, of government, and, and so these problems don't get solved. And how is it, I mean, you do have a, a great section at the end in which you sort of go through all these arguments, but it's still, to a non-lawyer, it just seems absurd. Oh. That somehow <laughs> this is all still legal and that... It's really on, sort of on us to stop this. Yeah. Well, yes, I can understand that it seems absurd, and it certainly is in incredibly dangerous. And, you know, even when we do have laws in place that arguably put the burden of proof on the industry to prove safety, as a practical matter, once something becomes a widespread practice or once it becomes an accepted industry, the burden of proof is, is just absolutely on those trying to establish danger, and it, it's just an incredibly slow process. And you point out that 
even though in sort of criminal proceedings you're innocent until proven guilty, how that is accorded the same power for corporations in these matters is sort of amazing as well. Well, you know, the fact of uh, of our understanding of burden of proof and innocent until proven guilty, that, of course, applies to individuals facing criminal charges by the right. state. Um, but but that then it gets used by industry that claims our chemical is innocent until proven guilty. Um, that was certainly used by the chemical and aerosol industries defending CFCs. Um, finally, in the 70s, there, there was this brief moment of, of sanity uh, at the federal level where we're actually members of the Ford administration uh, stepped forward and said, look, we're talking about taking uh, something out of cans of deodorant and and hairspray and you can replace it with something else. We're talking about catastrophic damage versus a trivial benefit from these chemicals. Uh, We're not going to give you the burden of proof. That's not how it's going to work in this case. For the most part, who has the burden of proof doesn't even really get discussed. It's just this kind of behind-the-scenes assumption. Um, and, And so, you know, that's moment regarding the, the aerosols stood out to me as a time when people actually recognized, oh yeah, the industry's claiming that they, that they get the benefit of the doubt and, and we need to step up and say, no, in this case, you just don't. And in many other cases, we probably need to step up and say that as well. We're talking to Barbara Fries, who's written a very interesting book called Industrial Strength Denial about the ways that a number of corporations and famous case studies and some not-so-famous case studies have gotten away with it. I, I had to uh, get you to talk a little bit about our 2007-2008 uh, Great Recession and the subprime collapse of the real estate market. Uh, I was telling you as we began, there was uh, one one of the worst days in my professional career is when I spent all day uh, negotiating with four different subprime companies about uh, the harms and adverse impacts they were having on low-income property owners in Orange County in one day. I mean, because oh. Orange County was sort of the, the boiler the, the boiler room of the country where uh, AmeriQuest had a huge office, uh, uh, One Option, which is the H&R Block company, New Century was there. What a story mm-hmm. that was. And we'd be saying... Uh, how would you explain the fact that more than half of your portfolio is in stated income loans, which are, you know, have become oh. to be called liars' loans? Yeah. But from our membership, we knew they were often loans that had been manufactured by brokers and then bought wholesale by these companies, and then they claimed that you know this was you know their it was all good. Uh, I remember one case from your hometown, St. Paul, where. A senior citizen that had, you know, paid for her house or family, you know, over the years, and they managed to get her and a refi to have a mortgage uh, that was way above her Social Security income, and mm. would mean that she would lose her house within years. I mean, but tell us about that story because yeah. that's another terrible situation. It, it was astonishing to me, and it sounds like you were on the on the front lines of a war that I was only barely aware of at the time, and and that was this new industry of mortgage lenders that were incredibly predatory and that were focused on the the poorest people and the least sophisticated financial consumers. 
uh, and urged them, as you said in, in the one case you mentioned, often to refinance their safe government mortgages and replace them with these incredibly high interest uh, rate mortgages that often would be adjustable, that would spring up, that would surprise them, and they had no idea how much they were actually paying for these. And that industry was able to do this for a long time because then they would sell these mortgages, which they knew eventually would fail. Uh, They would sell them to Wall Street. And Wall Street was urging them to keep lowering their standards so they could buy more and more of these mortgages. Wall Street would then package them together and slice them and dice them in sort of complicated ways. Uh, they, they essentially corrupted the, the ratings industries to, to give them right. high ratings. And then they sold these to investors who basically were, were uh, sold terribly dangerous mortgages that had been dressed up to look like safe investments. And that all continued until the housing bubble burst, and then all of this toxic debt, uh, you know, exploded. And that's really what caused the financial crisis of 2008 that, that brought the, the world financial industry pretty much to its knees. I mean, what was amazing to me, and it's still the case now where, you know, more than a dozen years past all that is, you know, if we, if we were just focusing, if you were writing your book about villains, I mean, it's the middle people, the mortgage brokers, I mean, they were, you know, enabled by the companies, but there was almost no supervision. I, I can still remember negotiating with several of these companies, and New Century was the first big bankruptcy that started this. And if you were a broker, you got your you got your payment incentive at the point you turned over the loan to them. So you didn't really care if it was a good loan or not. You didn't care if you... That, you know, and that, sort of, that same incentive structure was, was true in Wall Street as well. So they could exactly. sell a, a product to somebody that would take years to unfold. They would get their bonus up front, so they had no incentive to make sure it was good. They had no incentive to keep their customers happy, to maintain any kind of long-term relationship. Um, and, and that short-termism, um, I think, was a, a big part of what enabled this whole you know, pipeline of toxic mortgage mortgages to go forward. Exactly. I was sitting with uh, Goldman Sachs on, on one of these companies and Deutsche Bank. I was, you know, and both of them were, and we were trying to negotiate and prove deals with them. Both of them were willing to make a deal with me. If I would just let them know individual houses where there was a mortgage problem, they would fix that. Ah, they just didn't great. want If we would just not, you know, stop making it an issue for everybody. Um, yeah. Because wow. it was, I mean, it was a terrible problem. Barbara, how do we stop? Uh, you know, how do we stop this in the future? Well, it, you know, I think the first thing we need to do is be pushing back against. You know, what do we do in the future? I, I think exactly. it's really important that we try society-wide to push back against corporate power over our democracy. And and there have been certainly uh, major times in the 20th century where that has been successfully done, at least helping to reduce corporate power, including the the Trust Busters era of the early 20th century, and then the New Deal, and then the 60s and 70s with all the consumer and environmental laws. I hope we are now on the cusp of, of really pushing back against corporate power. Uh, but but the one lesson that I've learned from from these eight different campaigns is that that the way that they were uh, that the way that they were uh, overcome was through a lot of different folks outside of these industries and initially outside of government drawing attention to the issue, scientists, researchers, journalists, 
ultimately the public gets involved and pays attention. Activist groups are formed. There are lawsuits. There are legislative hearings. Eventually, the government is prompted to act, and, and most of these cases end with a law is passed. Um, that's, a, that's a temporary ending, but, it, but it's in all cases a major step forward. Uh, it takes so a big I village. Barbara, how do does. people get a copy of your book, Industrial Strength Denial? It's it's available wherever fine books are sold. Um, I have a website, barbarafreeze.com, but, but if you check in with your local bookstores or, or any of the online uh, ways you use to buy books, you'll be able to find Industrial Strength Denial. Spell the name of your website, please. Uh, B-A-R-B-A-R-A-F-R-E-E-S-E. Uh, dot com. Dot com. And if people want to continue this conversation, is there some sort of uh, email that's connected to that that uh, they could ask you a question or hear from you? Uh, my email is they can contact me through my website if they want to email me. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Barbara. This has been Wage World for another week, the world where the other half lives, where we talk about things you've never heard. And as Lucinda Williams sang, things you've never seen will never forget. Wage World is underwritten by the Darrow Foundation. A progressive force enabling change based in Little Rock, Arkansas. As the song goes, we say it loud, we say it on the air, we say it on the radio. Until next week when we'll have another guest, this is Wade Rathke from Wade's World. Thank you.